Welcome to The Good, The Bad, and The Science, the show that breaks down the science of television and movies with a comedian and a scientist. Today, we're discussing Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. So I'll ask about teleportation, invisible spaceships, and gravity boots. But first, a short word from our sponsor. Hi everyone, I'm your host Ethan Edinburgh, and I've got two wonderful guests joining me today. My first guest is an actor, writer, and comedian. Welcome to the show, Kyle June Williams. Thank you so very much. I am looking forward to our Space Beyond conversation. <laughs> Kyle, you already sound like the onboard computer of a futuristic spaceship. <laughs> Ooh, I've always wanted a man to say that to me. <laughs> We're a match made in space. <laughs> No, I do thank you for being on the show. And I wanted to ask you before we got started, if you have a Trekstery, if you are a big Star Trek fan, if you've seen all these movies, what what are you bringing here? Oh, yes. I have seen everything having to do with Star Trek. My father wow. was a huge Trekkie wow. and a real sci-fi nerd. Uh, at one point, he decided he wanted to make a science fiction restaurant like a themed what? restaurant. Oh, yeah. The Sci-Fi Cafe. <laughs> okay. And um, when that failed, he brought the giant <laughs> alien head that he had had made and put it on the front of our house. So, <laughs> so I'm ready. So everyone can know that you're a family of freaks. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Man, I want to see the full menu of the Sci-Fi Cafe. That sounds so fun. Oh, yeah. It would have been. But, you know. Unfortunately, it failed just like the Starfleet. Yes, this is true. Well, listen, there's still hope, okay? You and I can, can uh, you know, compile all of our resources and, and open up a big sci-fi cafe somewhere where the rent is cheap, somewhere in Idaho. Oh, I'm about it. Let's do it. Okay. That that is what this podcast is for, though, right? This uh, correct. It's basically yeah. yeah. It's like a Shark Tank um, of minds coming together to <laughs> pool their resources to create weird ideas. Excellent. I'm glad I know where I am. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So we'll get into that right after the 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 pod here. But our our second guest, I'm so excited to speak with. He is a SpaceX mission manager. He is an author and and most importantly, a returning guest. Welcome to the show, Dr. Andrew Rader. Wonderful to be here. Thank you for coming back. Last time we spoke, we were talking about a Star Wars movie. And so I got to ask, it begs the question, what is better, Wars or Trek? I, I think Star Trek is better because it's an optimistic representation of humanity's future. It's really about us. So there's a really great article about Star Trek that talks about how, you know, the space goblins, the, the Klingons basically, or the space elves, the Vulcans, basically are just allowing us to reflect upon ourselves. And this movie in particular is really just about humanity. It's just, it's about the Cold War, but human nature. And so all of Star Trek is just telling a tale about ourselves. And it's really insightful. And they always break new ground. It had first interracial kiss on television. They're always really forward looking. Uh, gay character, trans character, uh, female captain, black captain, all these things are always yep. being the first in, in almost all ways. And, uh, Star Wars is a fun diversion, but Star Trek is really the tale of humanity. Wow, that is huge news. I love that. And so what makes Star Wars so racist and terrible? 
well, it was a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. And a, and a long time ago, you know, we were, you know, more racist and stuff. So I guess that's why it's sort of just in the past. More racist a long time ago? Oh, well, slavery. Yes, absolutely. This is actually something that uh, I find very strange because... Things in almost every way are much better now than they've ever been. That being said, we still, you know, have issues. But if you compare any, t in fact, I have this idea. I want to do a YouTube show about news from the past or old news. And basically mm -hmm. it's uh, going through history and talking about all the news that happened. And it's terrible, right? <laughs> you know, even right. like COVID, for example, super minor compared to the plagues that we've had in the past. It's not even the top 10 in terms of uh, percentage deaths and stuff like that. So yeah, the past Man. is terrible. And the future is pretty good. And the future will continue to get better. Yeah, I loved quotes like, they all look alike. And what is that smell? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, they were, yes, absolutely. That's exactly right. It's looking at humanity. Uh, it works in all in Star Trek. And those were the characters who, you know, actually did the assassinations, right? So, oh, spoiler. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, the spoilers accepted here. If you haven't yeah. watched Star Trek six, I don't know what you're doing. Listen to this. But uh, also you're like 30 years late, I think. So, By the way, this is uh, not only the first Star Trek movie that I saw in theaters, but I believe this is the first movie that I saw in theaters without my parents of any kind. So this is a wow. really special movie for me. Uh, I think it's probably my favorite Star Trek movie and Star Trek is probably my favorite genre. So, yeah. Damn! So this is this is everything to you. People this is big. prefer Wrath of Khan, but I actually think this one is much better. It's a subtle tale of humanity and interactions, and basically acceptance of other cultures and kind of forging, bridging gaps between cultures. And yes, it's, it's really, yeah. yeah. I, I did love how they were forced to look inside themselves to kind of solve things in this movie. They, they talk about prejudice and even uh, even Spock, who's always super smart, logical character, is convinced that the new ship member is is somewhat perfect because uh, she's a Vulcan as well. And so he even is is a is a victim of, of prejudice, which is I thought really interesting. Kim Cattrall. Kim Cattrall. Kim Cattrall's character. Exactly. I was very attracted to her when I first saw her, only to realize that I was watching Samantha with sexy pointy eyebrows, sexy pointy ears, and no emotion at all. It was, mm -hmm. I, I was That's surprised. Hot. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, that spicy stuff. Um, and unfortunately, we, we didn't get any romance with her. We instead got romance with the... Iman! Yeah, with Iman, which was really, in my opinion, just uncalled for and out of nowhere. But, I mean, still fun. They At least they made it a fun scene by having McCoy uh, be the one who's like... I, I feel like the representation of the audience where he's just like, what is with you? What is going on here? Only Captain Kirk would get some play on an alien prison planet. <laughs> Yeah. You know, from yes. a supermodel chameleon. Like, so true. I guess men wrote this movie. Yeah, yeah those are little hints. <laughs> <laughs> so the whole thing starts with a subspace shockwave that like shakes the whole ship. And I believe they refer to it as a neutron radiation. So can you explain to me what exactly happened there? And if realistically it would shake up a ship like that? Yeah, so it's an explosion of Praxis uh, Engineering Moon. I think it's a moon of the Klingon homeworld. I don't know if they said it for sure, but it, anyway, it's a moon sort of somewhere in the Klingon Empire. Uh, explodes over mining. I don't know. Like, we're not able to de uh, 
dig down into our, our core enough to really cause something like that. So I don't know how that kind of thing could happen. Uh, it's kind of like Star Wars-ish, destroying a planet. So could you get that effect in general? Eh, unlikely. Could you have a shockwave traveling through space? Yes. So sound doesn't travel through space because there's no matter to carry sound. Certain types of waves can travel through space, other ones can't. But if it was material, matter coming actually off the moon from the explosion being sent outwards into space, it could. However, it would probably travel in all directions at the same time, so 360, whereas they showed as basically this ring coming off, which I guess Excelsior was pretty unlucky to be just in the path of that ring. But that uh, movie effect is actually now called the Praxis effect, and it's used in other movies. Other, other movies thought it was, it's just now known as a special effects term called the Praxis effect, named after the moon. And yeah. the, when they redid the Star Wars movies, the explosion of the Death Star, they copied that. And so all the Death Stars now explode just like Praxis oh my did, God. even though it's not actually realistic. Yeah. Another reason why, yes, yeah, Star Wars is lesser than. <laughs> it used to, the, the old Death Star explosion before they did the re, they re-engineered the special effects, kind of just looked like a light bulb exploding, but now it, does, it looks like Praxis exploding. So this is how, because of this movie, this is how all exploding planets and space stations and stuff are shown now in all movies, pretty much. Wow. I love to think about George Lucas watching this movie in like 91 and being like, what? We can do this? Change my movie. So when stars explode, for example, supernovas, they do send shockwaves through space and you have material traveling through space and stars give off radiation so that can travel through space as well. So definitely all realistic, uh, depicted in a slightly unrealistic way. And also, could the moon really explode? Yeah, probably, probably not. I mean, maybe if it was hit by a giant asteroid or something like that, it could explode. But could humans, even 300 years from now, or Klingons actually, cause their moon to explode? Maybe if intentionally, if they, you know, had a... <laughs> here, overmining. So maybe they're doing asteroid mining mm. and redirected an asteroid hit the planet. That could work. How realistic was the strategically placed smudge on the captain once they were hit? You mean, in, are you talking about the, like, Sulu, Captain Sulu, or are you talking about... Yes, Klingon? Captain Sulu. When, when, the, when the shockwave hit, they all, um, you know, had a, had a pratfall at the same time, and mm -hmm. then... Um, Captain Sulu came up and had uh, strategically placed smudges on his face, you know, to signify a, a, a burn, a, oh, a, a okay. um, mm -hmm. matter flying through the air, yeah, or uh, bad so, makeup. Uh, so I didn't notice that, but but you bring up a really interesting point. So one thing about Star Trek is damage. You know, they want people to be involved in the damage and kind of mm. realize that the ship's being damaged. So they have camera shake. So that's how they do the ship shaking. They actually shake the hammer instead. And they have like explosions out of the panels and stuff like this, right? Which is somewhat unrealistic because something like a shockwave. So a ship has uh, something called inertial dampers, which, you know, we don't really know how that works, but it cancels out accelerations, right? Because humans don't care about velocity. You could be going any speed. As long as you're not changing speed, it doesn't matter. In a car accident, in a plane accident, all these things, what kills you is the acceleration. So you take G's, basically. We, we express it in G's. Earth gravity is 1G. If a human body takes like 30 Gs, you'll probably compress your organs and, you know, basically have internal bleeding and kill yourself. If you're going like 1,000 Gs, you're going to turn into a splat on the windshield, right? So a, for a starship to have just enough Gs 
to kind of shake the crew around and have hit the floor, but not enough to splat them on the windshield. It's fairly unlikely. Like it's, you could argue maybe it's some kind of slight mistuning of the inertial dampers, but an explosion, any kind of ship damage. Actually, this is the thing about ship damage in general in Star Trek, particularly in the battle scenes and stuff. It's either like space combat is really deadly because it's going to blow giant holes in the ship and it's going to, you know, photon torpedoes, right? This is, this is the thing about photon torpedoes. They should. We have fusion bombs that could blow up, you know, huge sections of a planet. A photon torpedo, particularly in a ship without shields, should obliterate a ship immediately, right? I mean, the fact that it just does a little bit of damage when they're getting hit like five in a row and it's, you know, shaking yeah, them around. Yeah, one of them like skips panels. off like a stone. Yeah, exactly. That is not very realistic. Space battles would be super, super vicious. And, and so the crew would either, in terms of the explosion, would either probably turn into splat on the windshield or not feel it at all, I think. Um, for the more Cape Canaveral, less SpaceX people out there, what does floton mean? Oh, Photon, you mean photon torpedo? Photon, see, I even pronounced it wrong. Photon torpedo, well, I mean, photon is a particle of light, so light work has a wave particle duality, and it's able to travel through space because it acts like a particle. Some waves can't travel through space, although a lot of types of radiations can, but it has to have a particle element. Um, But it acts as a wave in a lot of quantum ways, Um, so, you know, bending of light and uh, through mediums so light works kind of both as a wave it's really weird a wave and a particle and so somehow the uh photon torpedoes are based on light i guess never explains uh in star wars they're called proton torpedoes you you could tell me anything and i'd believe it so you know (laughs) and uh later in star trek they get upgraded to quantum torpedoes which still strangely are vastly inferior to fusion bombs which we can build now so Mm. yeah of course they are vastly inferior super strange i had a bunch of questions about space battles in general because and i think it mixes in with the teleportation discussion because they're beaming people that's pretty much all they beam at least in this movie is like a person from here to there person from a planet person back to the ship and so i was just thinking i don't know if this has ever been brought up i'm sure it has because i'm a schmuck but like have wouldn't they be able to also just teleport stuff okay you're you're nodding at me like yeah wouldn't they be able to teleport a torpedo or teleport like the captain of the other ship or whatever instead of okay yeah beam their captain into space yeah exactly so okay there's a few things that you could argue right so one is shields prevent teleportation so if the shields are up you can't kind of do bad things to the other ship but there are situations where shields are down and they still kind of don't. Maybe it's a gentleman's agreement. <laughs> I don't know if that's a second start, but <laughs> to, to not be their captains into space or something like that. Um, yeah, but you totally could. The problem with transporters is they're so powerful, you can do anything. You can store backup copies of yourself, so if you die, it doesn't matter. I mean, trans- tel- transporters are so powerful that you, it opens this whole realm of issues with the storyline yeah you can beam fusion bombs under their ship and blow it up right you can beam giant holes in their ship you can beam half their ship to another place i mean it's just it opens so many it's such a giant can of worms that it's basically impossible to have it be consistent with regular combat transporters are just god god machines basically um so yeah i i got two questions for you on that one and this is more of a plot thing with this movie he waits to put the shields up or or I think doesn't even put them up at all. He like says, hey, we surrender, whatever. Is that because the shields would make it seem like he's preparing for battle? Because to me, it's like, wouldn't you just always have, if there's a ship, 
even close to you, just have your shields up just in case? Yeah, sort of. So the old series in particular has this different thing where force fields may actually be different from shields. So they have internal force fields for structure and stuff, and you could argue that gives them protection. Shields are a really defensive thing. But yeah, it's definitely mm -hmm. a gesture of goodwill. I, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, the handshake for the Boy Scouts, but what they do is they always shake with their left hand because it's based on the Zulu, and the Zulu would carry their shield in their left hand. Uh, and the spear in the right hand. Uh, and so putting down your shield is actually more of a gesture of goodwill than uh, putting down your spear because it's indicating that you're defenseless and I trust you enough not to kill me, cool. basically. So yeah, it's totally just a gesture of goodwill. Um, in Star Trek II, they actually reference that if a ship is unidentified, it's a regulation that they have to put the shields, but this was identified, so he wasn't breaking regulations. Got it. Okay, that's very cool. I love that. And then um, teleportation today. Can we teleport stuff at all is are there little tiny you know quantum things we can teleport how does that work yes possibly so so you may be able to teleport a photon or something like that i think that actually is possible maybe has been demonstrated in small amounts a photon is so incredibly different from a person or something like that right like it's it's way sub atom you can you know teleport a whole atom and let alone a molecule let alone a cell let alone you know tissue let alone a person i think teleportation is something that probably will never happen at least for humans if it does we're so far beyond our technology it's just not even consistent with the rest of the technology they have you know well warp drive is pretty magic too traveling faster than the speed of light but teleportation is just something that is a complete game changer in everything yeah, I don't, but why, I don't know why is it so far fetched if we can already do it to tiny tinies? Mm. Can yeah. it shouldn't the natural progression be not so tinies and then us? Well, so the other well the other thing is every time the teleporter operates, the transporter operates, you basically die and then it creates a, a representation <laughs> of yourself. So it's a death machine. Um, but <laughs> so would you want to do that? The other thing, but it's a matter of yes. keeping track of all this stuff. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it's a matter of keeping track of all the information, right? And the information is not just like where your cells are, but it's memories, it's chemicals within the cells. I think the amount of data that you would have to actually, you know, recreate and store, I, they do talk about this, like short-term pattern buffers and stuff, although I don't know why you could store something for a short time, but not a long time. The pattern <laughs> Me <degrades. too. laughs> but, but anyway. Um, Tupperware. That... <laughs> You know, it's just so incredibly much data and so incredibly much energy because basically what you're doing, I guess, is doing a matter energy conversion. That's Einstein equals MC square stuff. And basically a small, you know, a few grams of matter would be more energy than a fusion bomb. So you're talking about a person that's dramatically more energy than, you know, all the nuclear weapons on Earth. That's kind of like the output of the sun or something. So it's just so Jeez. there's there's so many challenges. So a photon is like one, I don't know, quadrillionth or something like that of the mass and energy Damn. and information, right? And so it's just a, a huge, vast challenge. All right, we're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go. Back to the show about science. I have a question. Um, why are most spaceships shaped like giant dog toys? Really, so, so so there's no reason to have a bridge at the top in an exposed plate. You would want it like right in the middle of the ship because clearly they're using view screens, not windows. So yeah, clearly. it's just it's 100 aesthetics. Actually, the aesthetics in this movie I think are phenomenal. I think this is my favorite 
looking ship of any of the next generation and D space not anything any of the movies i think Sick. i really like it yeah yeah, I like the look of the the Klingon ship too. Mm. It looked like yeah, it looks kind of ominous and and it looked like it made more sense at least. It looked like it <laughs> like was more ship shaped uh, to me than yeah those like really thin. I always get weirded out by those super thin sections of spaceships because it's like if you, if that gets hit, it's over. It's definitely over. Totally. Although as I said, I think you know given the technology that weapons should be at, if you got hit by anything, right. be over. That's kind of what space combat would be like. It would be basically kind of like the cloaking scene where if the mm-hmm. hard part would be hitting the ship. Even modern naval combat today is more about radar detection, avoiding detection. If you get hit by a missile, you're kind of dead. So you want to stop the missiles. You shoot down the incoming missiles and things like that. They have systems to intercept missiles to uh, try to cloak basically stealth destroyers that, that don't mm-hmm. show up on radar and things like that. So the idea is to hit the enemy first, not get hit yourself at all, and try to interdict incoming fire if, because if you get hit, you're kind of dead. Right. Yeah, because right. a lot of the times they're like, seal off that quadrant. Quadrant. Quarter. Mm-hmm. Like right? a, a part of a Quarter. ship. Quarter. Yeah, yeah. 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 And yeah. and then fires inside of it, and you just assume that that'll go away. Mm-hmm. But in fact, what you're telling me is that's not the case, and they would be obliterated. It, so, given what so photon torpedoes, we know sort of their level of damage, and they don't obliterate the ships. But the question is, why aren't they more powerful? Because even today, we can build weapons that are far more powerful than proton torpedoes. Mm. Right, right. And and I had a question about that ship you were talking about, the invisible ship, the cloaked, uh, evil cloaked ship. The bird that, of prey. The bird of prey proto, prototype that uh, uh, Christopher Plummer, I believe, was manning, uh, who was so awesome, awesome actor, in, yeah. this, in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> the acting him, was great. I saw him uh, live for The Tempest. He's a Shakespearean actor, so actually oh represented God. the movie. So it was William Shatner, and they both started at Stratford in Canada, where I'm from. Uh, they both started, got their start there doing Shakespeare. Wow, that's unbelievable. I can't imagine seeing the two of them do Shakespeare together. That's probably so fun um, and makes me want to do it now. But uh, we'll get back to that later. So I don't, I, I was a little bit frustrated and maybe I just missed an explanation that's possible about this invisible ship because everything is so crazy futuristic and yet they a either don't have stealth ships because they're kind of reacting like we've never experienced something like this this can't exist was their attitude i felt like but then they okay they accept that there is a prototype that okay we all kind of get what it does but they don't figure out a way until they're about to die to locate it and so i just wanted to i was curious if that rubbed you the wrong way at all or if they if you assume that they should have like i don't know an infrared radar like especially if you were hip to the fact that there was a ship near you, wouldn't you be able to just scan an area nearby and be like, oh, there's a huge machine here? Yeah, I think so. So this is so it's not inconsistent. So the earlier Star Trek movies episodes have cloaked ships. And clo- cloaking a ship is probably realistic. You're kind of right with the, how good the sensors are. They could even say scan for space dust in any area of right. space that didn't have space dust, would, you know. Uh, but, but basically the idea behind a cloak in general, which is pretty much how stealth technology works today, is that you would have 
you absorb the uh, radar or visual, whatever kind of light, whatever kind of emissions you're scanning with, you would basically absorb them so they don't bounce back. Because sensor technology, at least today, is based on the bounce back of signals. So a radar sends out pings and it bounces off a ship or, or an airplane and comes back and, and is detected by the dish, right? Same thing with light. That's how our eyes work. We detect light that's bouncing off of an object, right? So if you absorb the light instead of bouncing it back, then you're basically cloaked and you can basically be invisible. Like, it is sort of possible to invent an invisibility cloak. I mean, it would be ridiculously tough, especially if you're moving around stuff, but you could sort of make a stationary object invis in invisible, yeah, like somewhat easily if you could absorb all the light or bounce it in different ways and stuff like that, right? Uh, and in effect, that's somewhat like a what... Um, a mirror is, I guess, because it's bouncing back the light without actually giving any additional information. But of course, then you see yourself. So yeah, that's it. Mirrors, not a good example, but but uh, but it does bounce back light in a certain way. So cloaking, realistic. Okay, so in Star Trek canon, ships can't fire while cloaked, and the explanation I think is that they take up too much energy in the cloaking device, so they can't either fire or raise shields while cloaked. Does that make sense? In terms of shields, I think probably, yeah. In terms of firing, not really, no. Because you're firing a torpedo. It doesn't take any energy to fire a torpedo. It's all self-contained. It's like firing a missile. Mm. All the propulsion system of a torpedo is in the torpedo. So you should be able to fire torpedoes while cloaked, actually. All, all ships should be able to. Now, firing a torpedo, however, would give away your location. And so as soon as the ship fired, you know exactly where it came from, and you can shoot phasers or something like that at it, right? So... In a, and the, the tracking device that they use in the movie is realistic, but the question is, should it be needed? Because firing would give away your location, and that's what happens with a sniper, that's what happens with a submarine. Uh, mm -hmm. Like in World War II, they'd fire torpedoes, and then they'd have to dive and get away because they'd see exactly where the wake started coming from, right? Or they'd see the location of where the torpedo came from. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I accept it. It's sort of just the way Star Trek works, but there are some issues around how firing itself would give away your location. I have a question about the interior. Um, uh, I was curious, uh, is it not a good practice when you're inside of a spaceship to light candles? Because Spock likes a bunch of them. Yeah, And that made me think, and correct me if I'm wrong, which I probably am, that something with the oxygen in the air would be bad. For well, that. okay. So, so candles give off carbon dioxide. The ba candles basically are like us. They take in oxygen and give off carbon dioxide. You can almost think of ourselves as doing combustion and stuff. So, the effect of a candle would be similar to human. I think what you're getting at is that humans ex or candles distinguish themselves in space. They do yes. certainly in the vacuum of space. They absolutely do. On a spaceship, they sort of do. Okay. So, on the International Space Station, if you light a candle, it will create a really round. You know how candles have kind of a raindrop shape, I guess. They get higher at the top of the plane. Um, on the International Space Station, they're going to be round because what causes the raindrop is the heat rising, right? Heat rises because uh, heat, hot air is lighter. It's less dense than cold air, right? So what the candle does is it creates this air current. Uh, the heat rises away and the new air comes in to, to feed the candle at the bottom, to feed the combustion. And so you get this process of revolving air. It's, it's a convection process, basically. That relies on uh, hot air being lighter than cold air. It's like a hot air balloon, so the heat rises away. Uh, so on the space station, you would get, you could light a candle and you would get a circular flame 
and the candle would extinguish itself because it would run out of oxygen because it doesn't have enough air circulation to take it away. But you could, for example, fan the air and cause it to uh, send enough oxygen its way to keep it burning, right? So you could do that. The thing is, on these starships, except in the exception where they knock out the gravity, there is gravity, and so a candle would work fine. I mean, they do tend to be regulations on ships to prevent flames and stuff, but I assume in the 24th century, 23rd century, uh, that the uh, fire suppression systems would be good enough. So there's not really any issues with candles in a, in a spaceship that has gravity. Wow, surprising. Yeah, I, I, I was with you there, Kyle. I was like, oh, yeah, no way that's going to be kosher to light a bunch of candles. That's got to be bad news. I'm here to ask the hard questions. Yep. <laughs> that's yeah. why we got you. We, <laughs> we waited so long to so we're like, I don't know if the podcast is ready for such a hard-hitting journalist like Kyle to come on, but, but now you're here. From Iraq to this uh, podcast, <laughs> nothing has its <laughs> limits with me. Um, that's right. I have also a question about refrigeration <laughs> aboard Great, a spaceship um because so on on in this movie one of the things that is one of my favorite parts is how they serve alcohol and uh it's this like crazy alcohol that kind of looks like mountain ice gatorade and it just looks so delicious and i imagine it's <laughs> kept very cold like vodka um and i'm just wondering like how does can you keep alcohol first of all is alcohol allowed on a spaceship oh it's a good question whether alcohol is allowed in the navy because and which you know sort of the extrapolation so a spaceship is basically a submarine people tend to think of spaceships like airplanes or something like that but the best analogy for a spaceship is a submarine uh, at least in our current world and uh, the u.s navy i believe is dry they don't actually serve alcohol but in the british navy still i think they get a rum ration this goes way back they get like a daily grog or whatever so it varies by the navy actually whether you're allowed to drink alcohol so, so like in the british navy it's considered you know a mandatory thing um now refrigeration not really any issues you just have a big freezer runs off the ship's power source today they serve ice cream on a really regular basis on all navy ships and stuff it's in fact for submarines in particular it's considered very important to have very good food um, because they're sort of underwater for six months at a time uh, you know basically out of contact with land and so food is something that keeps up crew morale so they have a lot of ice cream and things like that and no issues with that really just have a big freezer Nice. Okay, cool. And on, on spaceships, have that, has that ever been brought to space? Oh, um, that's a good question. Do we have, uh, so certainly freezers have been used in space uh, for probably for science experiments. I don't think they use them a lot for food because they do have, you know, the astronaut ice cream just because it's uh, simpler, takes up less room, less mass. It's just much easier mm -hmm. to do it that way. But I'm sure they have freezers for scientific experiments and things like that. Yeah, but since in space food is freeze-dried, and what we're seeing in this movie is like a four course meal with like fresh lettuce and roast bird. Uh, how does, how does, do they have a full kitchen on the Star Trek spaceship scenario? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the reason we use freeze dries dried food today is because it's low mass, easy to launch to space. Launching on rockets is pretty you know, expensive and stuff. So we try to keep the mass down. Try to, it's like camping kind of thing. 
Uh, but, you know, they have these giant power generators, a lot of space, and they would have kitchens and anything, you know, we would have on Earth pretty much. They even have gravity, which is probably the most, well, other than transporters, I would say, and maybe warp drive, artificial gravity is one of the least um, well-represented things, which, which, to its credit, this movie is one of the only places in Star Trek where they actually show a ship losing gravity. And gravity boots. Oh, right, and gravity boots. Um I, I'm still concerned for our astronauts that are up there for months at a time, like you said, like without good food. If people are in a submarine for six months, I want them to have, you know, shrimp and grits. Um, so same thing with uh, with people in space. So I, I feel for them if that's not the case. I love astronaut ice cream. It's one of my favorite things. I actually like it better than regular ice cream. And also they for the International Space Station, they have teams of chefs making the best possible meals and they customize oh. the meals to the person, actually. So you actually oh. get to eat your favorite food all the time. It's just kind of hell yeah. Certain way. Okay, cool. So that's good news. All right. So yeah, let's get into that gravity then. Why? Why is it so hard to make artificial gravity? And do we have gravity boots? And where can I get them? Yeah. So gravity is a fundamental property of the universe, and it really cannot be messed with. Basically, so each Whoa. atom in the universe attracts every other atom in the universe with a force that operates at the speed of light. So it sounds really weird, but you're attracting the uh, atoms from the Andromeda galaxy right now, but it takes 2 million years for that effect to be noticed, right? Uh, because you don't have all that many atoms compared to a galaxy. Hey, watch it. Uh, the effect is very small, right? So, so gravity is based on uh, the mass of the two objects. It's um, proportional to the mass of object one and object two divided by the uh, square of the distance. So the closer you are, the more gravity. Uh, the further you are, the less, and the more mass of the objects, the more gravity. So Earth has a lot of gravity because it's a big object, and it's pretty close to us. We're sitting right on top of it, so it attracts us right down. But the gravity between me and you is not that big because we're further away and also because we're a lot less massive than this giant planet, right? So you, it's hard to create that effect, right? You, the only way to create gravity is by having a lot of mass, basically, right? And so on a spaceship, there's not enough mass to create gravity. The Death Star even is pretty small. This is actually one of the things about Prax, or not Praxis, um, Ruripente. The, they call it an asteroid, right? Uh, well, the largest asteroid in all our solar system, Ceres, which is actually now even a dwarf planet, only has 15% of the gravity of the moon. That's kind of like 1% of the gravity of Earth. So if you jumped, just a regular jump, you would go 50 feet in the air. Right? And they're just walking around like normal. right? So this place, Ruapente, the ice planet, would have very low gravity because it is an asteroid. Unless it has sort of some kind of gravity generator, just like the spaceships do. Now, how does gravity work in Star Trek? They have these things called gravity plates. They have on the floor, they have gravity plates. How does it work? No idea. It just breaks the laws of physics as we know. We do not know how these work. Um, however, in the Star Trek technical manual for the Enterprise, they actually talk about these turbine rotors that spin really fast. And they have about maybe 50 of them around the ship or something like that. The speed somehow maybe generates gravity. Uh, maybe kind of some effect like that within the turbine wouldn't propagate beyond, you know, how does that work? Basically, gravity has no way that it should possibly work in Star Trek that we know of. But just kind of like transporters, transporters, warp drive, and gravity, those things wouldn't work without our understanding uh, within the laws of science. Those are probably the main, the main things that wouldn't work in Star Trek as far as we know. Uh, warp drive, there's some like kind of ideas, but they probably also wouldn't work. Um, yeah, so how would then gravity plates, I guess they must be powered or something like that. I mean, and so if the ship lost power, maybe 
it loses gravity, but there's plenty of other times in Star Trek where ships lose power, but they don't lose gravity. So maybe you could say there's a gravity generator on the Klingon ship and they specifically targeted that. Okay, yeah, I guess, but then it works differently from these gravity plates. Eh, so, I mean, that's something you just kind of have to accept. Uh, it's cool that they show that a ship could lose gravity, because really, but, but in reality, probably all the ships would never have gravity. And it's kind of one of those things that the reason why ships in, in Star Trek have gravity is because it's easier to film. Like, you know, in the 60s when they were, and same reason, the reason transporters exist in Star Trek it's not anything to do with science. It's actually because it's easier to film. They didn't want to spend the budget to film all these scenes of the shuttles taking going down to the planet and taking off again. It's easier just to instantly zip them to the planet. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So did the, the gravity boots make any sense? Like, are there tiny plates in those boots or just like magnetized boots? Because I think they called them magnetic boots. As, I, I assume they're magnets. Yeah. So that would okay. work. Yeah. I assume, I assume they're magnets that kind of, turn on and turn off so you could selectively turn them on or the base of your foot pressure that would mm -hmm. so assuming that the uh floor of the ship was ferrous like was iron or something that would attract magnets then it would work and i think the Klingon ship was even showed to have basically a, a metal floor so yeah that could work and it would it wouldn't be too tough then to find the right uh magnet that you could you know step easily no, you could turn it on and off, and that would be like an electromagnet. Oh. So, you know, like the magnets that carry, uh, pick up the cars and stuff on a crane, so they turn gotcha. on and off the magnet by running a field through it. That's actually how a motor works, is they use electricity to selectively turn on a magnet and stuff. So, yeah, that's that's actually, actually pretty good. So, the people would not have gravity, so they'd be kind of floating around, but then their feet would be attached to the floor. They'd be a lot better off than the other people, but it wouldn't be, you know, it'd still be a slightly disorienting. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. The break is over. Here we go. Back to the show about science. Um, well, I was curious about, like, because they have um, teleportation, obviously, because you were saying, because it's cheaper. But also, I mean, if they... What happens when you go outside of a spaceship and you freeze to death? Why does that happen? Because <laughs> space is cold. Because <laughs> you're far um, away from the sun? Why? Uh, yeah, so, so actually it's sort of a misconception that space is cold. So space basically has no temperature at all because the temperature that we experience is from the air surrounding us or the things that we touch, right? So different types of heat transfer, convection is like moving air, conduction is like touching an object. And so in space, because there's no air, you don't actually really lose heat or really gain heat either. Uh, however, the third method of heat transfer is radiation. And so you actually give off heat to deep space. And so you're going to lose heat that way, but you would absorb heat from the sun. So, so you're kind of an isolate, you're, you're kind of really insulated in space, actually. The best insulation is a vacuum, in fact, like space. Um, so if you're pointing toward the sun, you're going to get a lot of heat coming in from that direction. But if any part of you that's pointing away from the sun is going to lose heat. Um, and so spacecraft um, actually have problems with overheating about as much as they have problems with um, underheating or, or being too cold. It's kind of it's just achieving the balance based on how you're pointing at the sun and how much of your face um, is showing towards deep space versus the sun, or you absorb also heat from a planet, for example, reflected off the planet. Um, so it's, it's kind of a misconception. Space is cold, but it's kind of a misconception because heat transfer kind of works very differently. Interesting. And um, about... Back to gravity. When the Klingons were shot, they had this like amazing fuchsia 
blood droplets that came out. And I was curious um, about the blood splatter uh, because it somehow dropped on their chest and laid there, but then it also floated in space because of lack of gravity. Can we mm. talk about that? Yeah, so the little droplets of blood would float around. If they hit an object, so if they're moving towards an object and they kind of got absorbed by that object, then they could sink into your shirt or something like that. So it's realistic that they would kind of end up on the uniforms and stuff if they're kind of moving in a particular direction. Um, or they would kind of bounce off a wall, maybe. They'd probably leave some behind. Um, kind of like a bouncy ball is what would happen. But the bouncy balls made of water <laughs> or blood and would kind of sink into to a fabric, right? Um, so, yeah, that, that was actually pretty realistic. One thing that's interesting is Klingon blood was portrayed as, as you say, fuchsia, I guess, or so. It's kind of between pink and purple, maybe. Uh, that's mm -hmm. not actually consistent with other Star Trek. So later on, they have Klingon blood being uh, red, kind of like humans. Um, but I think the reason they did that is because they didn't, they thought it would be too gory if it looked like real blood floating around. So it was kind of a rating thing, maybe, or at least not to scare the kids thing, mm. uh, that Klingon blood was shown as, as fuchsia. Uh, it's not consistent, but in Star Trek, aliens do have a wide variety of different colors of blood based on different metals that absorb the oxygen. So Spock is well known for having green blood. Vulcans, Vulcans and Romulans have green blood based on copper. Uh, there's a number of other blood colors. In fact, it, kind of across the whole spectrum are the most interesting being Bolians, who are those blue aliens. I, I don't know if they're in the old series at all, actually, but in the next generation, there's a lot of Bolians, and uh, they have blue blood based on cobalt, uh, corrosive, kind of like the aliens. And uh, in fact, all their bodily fluids are supposedly corrosive. So there's stories about sexual encounters with Bolians that are quite dangerous because they have acidic uh, sexual uh, acidic body fluids. So yeah, be careful of Bolian. I'll avoid them on Tinder. Um, I'm wondering uh, if maybe they didn't have red blood this time because it was such a topic of how being called human was uh, like a rude thing to say. Hmm. And that yeah. is so similar to like, you know, that's, a, that's such an identifiable human trait. Because they were like pissed if you called them human. Mm -hmm. That's just my Trekkie take. I think that's valid Trekkie knowledge. Um, the the last thing, because we're, we're running short on time, was the shapeshifter you mentioned earlier, the hot, uh, attracted to Kirk uh, shapeshifter woman. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I assume that you don't have some sort of secret scientific knowledge about uh, things that can shapeshift in labs. <laughs> <laughs> Not really. So, sort of. Here's the closest thing that we have on Earth is octopus. So, they can change their shape into a wide variety of textures, colors, shapes. They can mimic fish and things like that. So, a soft-bodied mm. animal could actually do a fairly decent job of shape-shifting. Chameleons can change their colors, of course. So, there are examples of things on Earth that can do somewhat of that. Um, there's a few problems. One is conservation of mass. So, you can't change the mass of your object, right? So turning from a, a giant alien kind of man to a, a little girl, I mean, I guess the little girl could be much more dense <laughs> somehow. Like yeah. have a, more she looked pretty jacked. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Crammed into a small package, maybe. I, I don't know. Uh, I suppose that's possible. Uh, but the thing is, you're changing kind of the nature of cells, right? Of body tissues. So you're changing bones and the muscles and all this kind of stuff. I mean, stem cells can do that. 
Caterpillars can do that. When they change into butterflies, they basically turn mm. into mush and reassemble themselves into a different shape. So it's not completely impossible, and we do have things on Earth that do that, but on a different time scale, like a caterpillar does that once, and it takes about a week. Um, so an alien that went into a cocoon and changed into a different shape, that's definitely possible. But changing right in front of your eyes, not really. Okay, so there's some sort of magic in the cocoon as well. Yeah, uh, butterflies are crazy, actually. So they do experiments where they kind of implant memories or give caterpillars memories. Their whole body turns to mush and kind of reforms, and they still have the memories, even though their brain melted. What the fuck? Uh, I feel like we're just starting a podcast. Um, I have so many (laughs) Mariposa questions now. (laughs) Yeah. I have a lot of Mary Pozo questions as well, um, but unfortunately, we don't have time. We're gonna have to bring you back for some, like a Bug's Life or something, I guess. Oh, that'd be good. <laughs> that would be that'd great. Be cool. Yeah. Um, so, Kyle June Williams, where can people keep in uh, touch with you? Keep tabs on you. What's going on? Um, I'm at Kyle June on everything, and uh, most of your children would probably follow me on their kids shows, like Baby Shark. Or oh. I'm a tiny hammerhead, which is also oh. how I shapeshift, Andrew. Very nice. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to awesome. uh, show that show to my daughter. Yeah. Is it good for three-year-olds? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm, mm-hmm. I promise I won't say any of the things I did on this podcast through, through the lens of a green shark. <laughs> we also got to get you on one of our shark episodes, Kyle. Uh, I listen, my knowledge is plentiful and boundless and yeah. you know, full of nonsense. <laughs> okay, perfect. Well, uh, you know, I thank you for watching this movie, for being on the show, for taking the time. Uh, and Andrew, as your as your second time, I, I really can't thank you enough. It's always so fascinating to to talk to you. Obviously, people need to get your book, uh, as I did, Beyond the Known. But uh, I don't know if there's something else you want to tell them about. Please do. Well, I've got a space game uh, expansion into the solar system, Stellar Horizons. You can look that up. It's basically how to create Star Trek out of our current technology. Ugh, I love that. Where? Uh, how can I play the game? I have an Xbox. Can I play no, no, it on no, it's Xbox? A, it's a tabletop game. <gasps> tabletop game. Oh, even cooler. It's a board oh game? Mm-hmm. Wait, can I redo mine? Andrew sounds way more awesome. <laughs> <He's> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Book. You can just make up whatever you want. Go ahead. He's got a board game. <laughs> um, I, I Once again, thank you both for joining me. It's been an absolute delight. I hope you have a good day. Bye-bye. The Good, the Bad, and the Science is a Seeker podcast produced by Emily Feld and me, Ethan Edinburgh. The executive producer is Brett Kushner, and our social media is managed by Blue Whale Media. Oh, follow us on Instagram at BadSciencePod. If there's a movie you'd like us to discuss on the podcast, feel free to email BadScienceAtSeeker.com. That's BadScienceAtSeeker.com. And please leave us an iTunes review. Give us five stars. I sound like an Uber driver. But it does help. It makes sure people know about the podcast, which we really appreciate. Thanks for listening. Bye.